0: Hello and welcome to Conversations in Cleantech, the podcast that celebrates the clean tech industry and the people that power it, brought to you by BrightSmith. I'm your host, Jenny Gladman, and in this sixth season, we delve deeper into the world of cleantech startups and their founders, from inspiring stories and words of wisdom to the toughest challenges. You can expect to learn about how these pioneering startups and the founders at their helm are propelling us towards a cleaner, greener tomorrow. In addition they'll be offering you timeless teachings to enlighten engage and inspire everyone everywhere to live their purpose today is one of those brilliant days you are treated to not one but two fantastic guests who not only love what they do but they're on a mission to make a significant difference in the world that we live in. They work for the same business, share the same mission, but have hugely different roles and face very different challenges on a day-to-day basis, which we will explore today. So it is my great pleasure to welcome Emily Ollinger, the Chief People Officer, and Rob Hansen, the co-founder and CEO of Monolith Materials to Conversations in Cleantech. Welcome, folks. Hello, thank you.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Uh, for those listeners who aren't familiar with Monolith, they are working tirelessly to provide a scalable, profitable, and environmentally transformative solution that has eluded the industry for more than a century. And that is clean commercial scale green hydrogen production, which they are gonna tell you all about. But before we get into the wonderful world of green hydrogen, um, I would love to hand it to each of you just to tell us a little bit about your own stories.
1: Um, I'm an engineer by training, uh, but going back even further, I grew up uh, in a place called Saskatoon, Canada, which is a very, very cold place. And I think it's probably where I first got an intuitive sense of energy and how critical it is. When, When you live somewhere that's, you know, just bone chillingly cold for a good part of the year, you build a little bit of a different relationship with energy. And for me growing up, you know, energy was, you know, warmth and in many ways it was life. And so when I got into, you know, technical school in Canada and then in the U.S., I really wanted to pursue a career in that space and this is the early to mid 2000s right when i think climate change was becoming a big part of the kind of global psyche and the conversation and so when i graduated from grad school i joined that field of climate tech or clean tech at the time working in solar and then nuclear and then ultimately founding monolith
0: lovely and uh, one of those more straightforward careers and now i hand to emily who's had Less of a, 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 like, I say more of a wiggly line into energy.
2: <laughs> yeah, indeed, quite a wiggly line. Uh, yeah, so actually, much like Rob, I grew up in cooler or colder weather. Um, I grew up in a um, smaller kind of mountain area um, in South Dakota um, known as the Black Hills. I went to actually school for psychology and mathematics so automatically have a bit of a weird brain um, in terms of just the interest in people um, but really quantifying that Um, and so yeah my career has not been a normal trajectory into energy nor was it normal trajectory into hr so spent a lot of my time in my early career as analyst as project manager moved into leadership roles and I've been in quite a few different industries, um, healthcare, care, government technology, e-commerce, um, and through um, some great work and mentors, ended up finding myself in HR. Um, and now I'm really excited to be in the energy space. And um, I think part of my passion is always how can I help an organization grow in scale? I love um, the difficulty that whether it be a startup or mid-sized company faces in terms of figuring out how do we really leverage people to get um, the business outcomes that we need, but in a really Stressful or strained um, or difficult environment, um, which is probably what drew me to Monolith um, originally. And now just excited to be a part of something that, from a technology perspective, is so complex and so unique
0: um, that I'm really excited to be a part of it. Fantastic. I also studied mathematics and ended up in people. And normally <laughs> people have that kind of look where they think, How did that happen? So it's, so yeah. it's great to meet a kindred spirit. <laughs>
2: Yes. Uh, yeah, We. I would say, yes, yeah, very kindred spirit. It just, yeah, it means we like spreadsheets and we like talking to people.
0: I know, yeah. I don't like spreadsheets enough to stay in it. I think that was it for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, amazing. Well, it's, it's good to hear the differences. And that's kind of one of the things we celebrate on this show is that there's no one way to get into the energy sector. And actually, I would always argue that companies are stronger for having a mix of the, the straight lines and the wiggly lines together where you've got very different viewpoints. And you definitely need that depth of experience in some of your talent, but, but bringing things from other sectors is amazing. But before we talk much more on the people side, I would love, Rob, for you to tell us the monolith story. So it's a it's a decade now in the making, and I think every single startup out there has their unique origin story. So yeah, what was the inspiration and, and how did you get started?
1: Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's been a decade effort for us, but it's really just the last decade on what's been a century long effort in this specific technology. So, you know, hydrogen has been in the news a lot lately, obviously not something new, but something that's become increasingly important to the energy transition. And when you think about hydrogen, it, it always comes from one of two places. You either get it from methane, which is the main part of natural gas, or you get it from water. Right, H2O, it's mostly hydrogen. Most hydrogen today is made from methane, but it's in a process that results in a whole bunch of CO2, about 10 tons of CO2 for every ton of hydrogen. You can also make it from water, but it's really expensive. And so that was always the trade-off, was you could either make it from methane cheaply, but with lots of emissions, or you can make from water, no emissions, but very expensive. But there was this other technology, it's called methane pyrolysis. And what it is, and people have been working on it for 100 years, it's that if you use electricity to heat methane to very high temperatures you can actually split it into solid carbon so not co2 you don't use oxygen to react it off you actually heat it without any oxygen convert it into solid carbon and hydrogen and what that does is it gives you hydrogen without generating co2 but if you can create value on the carbon side which for us that's a, another product from our process it's called carbon black it goes into everything from tires to mascara and big existing market then all of a sudden you have both a affordable hydrogen as well as a clean one. Now, the hard part is the technology has been very elusive over, like I said, a century of people working on it nonstop. And so we kind of took up the mission 10 years ago and we wanted to be that, you know, last group to push it across the finish line. And, uh, that's what the effort's been about through partnership with some of those that came before us and then building a great company around trying to make this technology commercially viable.
0: Fantastic. And what was the kind of spark for you where you realized that you had to do this?
1: So I started my career in solar at a startup uh, and had a great ride there. This is in kind of my early 20s. Of course, I had maybe not made the best decision to end up there when I got out of grad school. I had two job offers. One was at the solar startup. Another job offer was at a little tiny electric car company, I think 20 or 30 employees at the time. And I passed on that which of course ended up being Tesla. So um, it got there maybe through not the best decision, but maybe in hindsight it was a good decision because it was an incredible experience. We built that company, Scale Technology, sold the company to the largest nuclear company in the world. And so then I found myself working for a 100,000 employee mega company. And while it was interesting technical work, it's just, you know, I thought it could have more impact on the earlier stage startup. And so with my best friend, we both left... Uh, the company and spent about a year looking for what we wanted to work on next and eventually came across this technology, methane pyrolysis, like I described and said, yeah, this is the one, this is the one for us to devote our careers towards bringing to the market because it could have such a big impact.
0: Fantastic. Um, Yeah, it's always interesting to know that early story and as much as I'm sure there was a moment in time when you kicked yourself that you didn't join Tesla. Had you have joined Tesla, you, we probably wouldn't be sat here having this conversation and you wouldn't have your own business. So <laughs> It's true. Yeah, every cloud. Now, Emily, just getting back to what we were talking about, about joining the sector. Sector, I'm sure it's been a baptism of fire. It's quite uh, quite different to some of those sectors that you mentioned, but also just an incredible opportunity to come in and scale a company so significantly and also to have a global impact through what the company's doing but driving that from a kind of people and culture perspective so how has it been so far and i know rob's here but you have to be honest
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i think a baptism by fire is a fair way to describe the curve of learning one thing i would give a lot of credibility to our team on is we are really understanding and open that that this is new technology it's you know while it's energy while there's a lot of folks with backgrounds um, specific in different energy sectors that work at monolith the thing i'm most proud is everybody is willing to help you learn um is open to whether you think it's a dumb question or not is open to the questions if you know if you see how you know the progress is going at our site and our location and you have a question about that you can ask anybody and i think that has made it um, a really positive experience for me coming into the organization. But I also think that's been a really positive for how we think about recruitment and onboarding people is this is an open environment, this is new technology and that makes it incredibly difficult to learn. Um, But our company does embrace that aspect of you can ask any question, you can learn about this technology. It doesn't matter that I'm not an engineer, but our engineers will sit with me and explain you know, different components of the plant or how the process works um, and are completely comfortable, you know, leaning into that with, you know, again, I'm an HR person, uh, but completely comfortable leaning in on that. So definitely been a huge learning curve. Um, I think one of the things I'm most excited by and maybe even surprised by within the clean tech space is that most people in this energy space um, and in the clean tech environment are very purpose-driven. This chance that we could build something that literally does have world-changing concepts and world-changing economics. It's really cool to just be a part of a team that is so grounded in the potential and the purpose um, of what we are doing. And it comes out, I mean, from an operator who formerly worked at you know, an electric company to an engineer um, that might have been at NASA, like it comes out in just so many different shapes of our company. And it's really impressive how purpose-driven we are.
0: And I actually had this question for later about being kind of purpose and mission-driven, but given you're talking about it now, I'm going to explore one step further of from a a challenge perspective of finding the right people, how do you go about finding those mission-driven, purpose-driven individuals? Because this is not a regular nine to five job for most of your team. So they need to be driven by something deeper than than the wage at the end of the week, which granted is important, but it, it has to be more than that. How do you find those people?
2: Yeah, I think we look through them from a few different venues, because I don't think it's just simply that, you know, they have this purpose to be a part of a clean tech and changing the the environmental story, right? There There is definitely a of a part of um, our team that came here for that purpose. But there's also a part of our team that came here for the chance to solve problems that nobody else is solving. There are people that are at Monolith because they're solving problems that were already solved at their previous company, and they get a chance to write what that story is here. So they get a much more hands-on part of defining and building this company Um, and i think a lot of people that come to monolith are really excited by that how we recruit for that honestly comes down to how we represent our brand and how our leaders Um, share that through interviews um, and through kind of the question and answer process in the selection. Um, We really do look for people that have, you know, faced some difficult challenges, have had, you know, to put some grit and tenacity behind their work that don't see work as just a nine to five. Of course, we want to provide the right work-life balance and all those things that are important. But many people that, you know, are successful here and strive to be here, want the challenge Want want the idea that i'm going to build something that's really hard and I, I i'm going to put in the mental and probably physical energy it takes to do that and then they're excited by those opportunities and, we, and we've got that out through the selection process i think oftentimes amazing
0: and i'm gonna go, cast that up one level to rob in terms of how he's built such a great diverse executive team which emily you're one of those people so uh uh, pass that to him of of what's that been like and how important has it been to find people who have had different journeys and different experiences.
1: Yeah, I, I think the you know diversity of thought, diversity of experience, has really been critical, especially as we start to scale. Early on, when it was you know really just doing one thing well, less important. Now, as we have to do the technology, the commercial, the project development, the regulatory capture well, um, it, it takes. A more diverse team. And then the second one is talent. And, you know, probably nothing is more important than just pure talent, competency. I mean, finding really interesting backgrounds like Emily's where psychology plus math, (laughs) that's a powerful combination when you're trying to scale a company rapidly, multiple locations with a highly technical organization that's going to demand that technical rigor in the decision-making about how we hire and promote and build groups out. I've just been shocked at like, especially over the past few years, as we've started to mature as a company, the level of talent that we've been able to attract. And I think it speaks to the space more so than necessarily, you know, me or the company. But like people really want to get into this. And it's different than 15, 20 years ago when I started my career. I think people see that this is like one of the grand challenges of our time. And I actually think in most cases, it makes more sense for people to join an existing startup than try and start one themselves, just because it is such a long journey in this space. And so I've been just so like, it's amazed me at the level of talent. And we hired a couple of executive roles over the last 12 months. And just like the pool of talent, right? The saying is you always want to hire people that are better than you at at least one thing that matters. And like the people we're finding are just like, Better than our existing team at everything. It's awesome. That's <laughs> possible thing to happen.
0: Well, no, that that's great, and I think it's the right attitude. Um, and my experience of talking to to hundreds of founders over the years is, it's the ones that don't see that and think that they have all the answers that have a habit of driving companies into the ground. So I think it's uh, it's it's certainly the right approach, and I think coming back to you on on challenges generally, and we don't focus just on the challenges here, but I think it's what people are always really interested to hear about. Now, Rob, you've built a business that's not just a startup that's scaling quickly, but it's also operating highly complex plants and keeping them online 24 seven, 365 days a year, which in itself is a gigantic task. Kind of, how do you go about facing these challenges and, and how do you keep yourself sane in the process?
1: Yeah, I think the gap between demonstrating something works once or a handful of times and making it work at scale twenty four seven, three sixty five, 365, like it's just so wide. I think a lot of people think that that once you've demonstrated once it's pretty easy and you can use existing, but that's actually the really hard part. And, and it's impossible to overstate how incredibly hard it is. We've been at this for 11 years. To reach the full maturity of the technology is going to be decades more and i i think that's going to be the case in almost all of the climate tech companies that matter and so how do you keep yourself sane i think you need to have a lot of resilience across the team and you also have to recognize that it's probably going to be the entirety of your career building out one of these companies uh, this this isn't traditional tech where you get to have five or ten tries at it So it means you better be working on something that matters and, you know, put lots of thought into where you choose to spend your time at the start or if you're going to join a company. But then like this stuff isn't going to just happen overnight. It's going to be the accumulation of, you know, decades of work that create the great companies. Now, on the other side, I think companies are going to have decades, a century of market leadership position because they'll have such a big moat around them. But I think just that recognition, because when something's really hard, if you're delusional of, well, it's going to get better tomorrow, when really it's going to take a lot of work and it's kind of that enjoyment of the, we have a, a core value that's enjoy the ride and it's, you've got to like, 30. you've got to like that grinding it out every day, because that is the work of building these companies. And so I think if you get that mindset, then, you know, the, the sanity is easier to keep because you understand what you're actually doing.
0: That's super helpful. And and thinking about the bigger picture and you've entered a space where arguably you don't have lots of competitors doing exactly the same thing, but the overall end product, there are kind of a lot of competitors and perhaps ones that are, are bigger names and kind of, you know, more recognized movers in the market. How has it been going from that kind of early stage startup to being extremely competitive in this space?
1: I think it's both been eye-opening to how actually good some of the you know incumbent companies. I think it's easy to look at some of the incumbent companies and say, well, they don't really know how to innovate or they don't know how to do something new. But often cases they're they're better than you might give them credit for. And they've learned a lot of hard lessons over decades of time, which make them more formidable. But on the other hand, I think we see, you know, there's a number of things about the the current structure in the market that makes incumbents very hard to do something new that's big. And that gets into, you know, requirements for them to hit certain quarterly returns. You know, they may have a lot of cash flow, but often that cash flow is highly spoken for in terms of dividends or stock buybacks. And so for them to embark on a decade plus journey where you're going to have negative cash flow with the promise of something big on the other end, it's just really, really hard. So it's this reality where I think I found that both in some ways, the competitors are more formidable, but then in other ways, their hands are tied and gives an opening for, I think, what companies like Monolith are trying to do, which is build big new businesses in these spaces that are crowded by really powerful incumbents. And I actually think there is a lane. Now you've got to be really good and you've it's not going to be easy, but there, there is a lane. And I think I think I've come to appreciate that over the last few years as we've you know, rub elbows with the big folks a little bit more.
0: And coming back to both of you, and you've both kind of touched on this already, but climate change is a global problem, um, and something we see a huge amount of is people looking at it at, at, on a local level. Obviously, every, every bit of difference makes a difference. So I'm, I'm really not kind of looking down on anyone that's making a small local difference because I am, I'm all for that. But I think if we're going to solve this globally and in a kind of united way, we need to look at things that work as solutions on a global level. Like how does that future look for monolith and kind of how do you see the globe coming together to solve these issues and and trying to find the right solutions? Or do you? (laughs) It's probably a better question.
2: I think you'll probably have a much more obviously broad industry, but the first thing that comes to mind is that, Probably deep connection with whether it's other companies in like stages that are in the clean tech space, like we need to stay connected with them to understand how they're progressing, to rally for them, to support them. And then probably another aspect I would say is just the broader connection with whether it's government agencies or um, groups that are really trying to help elevate um, projects um, or companies much like our stage. I think that ability to leverage the groups or agencies or individuals that are at a more global stage that can really help, whether it's share our mission, share where we're at and how we're progressing and help to be really strong advocates for when we are building our next cider plant um, when we do want to be able to make sure our product is understood and how it will be beneficial um, as a consumable product from um, an environmental perspective but also for companies that we would sell it to so i think there is an element both of that kind of consistent advocacy, that relationship building, and those aren't just, you know, one-time deals. I know, you know, Rob spends a significant amount of time making sure we're broadly connected in the industry, but also broadly connected with groups that can help make sure we've got a voice on a global scale when we can't do that probably as well individually.
1: Yeah, I just think the scale of this challenge is so enormous. And I, I think often often people think it's easier than it's than it really is. And they think with, to your point, a few behavioral changes and, and we've got this solved. But if you go back, you know, we, we've built this economy, this society, this culture over the last several hundred years, really with energy at the center. And at the center of that energy was fossil fuels. And we've got to rebuild all of that. Like we really do. And and that's the hard part is this isn't just something around the edges. This is like fundamentally rebuilding the entire infrastructure of the planet, which is one of the biggest challenges you could possibly think up. And so I, I think when you kind of scale the problem and the challenge to the right size, then you make a few observations or realizations. One is it's going to take policy. This isn't just about companies. And I think we've seen some movement across parts of the world over the past year on that that are positive. And then you're going to need financial markets to support new companies and existing companies that are trying to do something material in this space when you talk about you know rebuilding the world's infrastructure and economy. And so I, th- I think the challenge is coming into focus. You know, it used to be this thought that, you know, if, if we said by 2030, we're going to be carbon neutral, it would just magically happen. And now the date's slipping out and the realization of how hard it is. But on the positive side, policies forming, financial markets are forming, companies are building and now scaling, and it's maybe not as daunting. It's going to take us longer than we thought. The impacts of climate change will bite harder than probably we hope. But I think you can see some light at the end of the tunnel of what it looks like to, you know, build companies and policy and financial markets that could help rebuild our global infrastructure to a low carbon one. And
0: both very, very valid points, and I think. There are huge challenges facing the sector, but you touched on a number of the solutions there and I think it just takes for a gigantic push by a huge number of people in the right direction and and we are starting to see those changes and some in some countries much faster than others but it would be yeah nice to see all aspects of that happening across the globe and I think we're we're still a significant way away but fingers crossed over the next kind of five years we're going to see a big step change
1: yeah and and just I'd add one thing what's what's really cool is seeing you know, people like Emily who aren't in this space now, you know, taking their career in this direction. And it's going to take that, right? It's it's going to take, I don't know, three to five percent of global GDP applied over a century. And that means, you know, three to five percent of people, of executives, of engineers, of psychologists, of everything, devoting their entire career to this space if we want to make it through to the other side. And so Emily's an example of that we have quite a few at the company. Um, it's an exciting movement different than the first around of kind of clean tech in the early 2000s.
0: Yeah and I, and actually that's one of the things that makes my job so interesting is the ability to bring those kind of unique talented individuals from other sectors into this space and don't get me wrong we still enjoy placing people who already work within it within it but there's something kind of special when you bring someone from a position where they may have enjoyed it, but perhaps not had that sense of kind of greater purpose into the sector and something just ignites from within them. And I would gamble that, Emily, your career will remain in this sector from now on, kind of watching your passion.
2: I hope so. Yeah, no, I really do believe that. I think it's the enormity of like how important and yet how big the opportunity is that you just You know, you don't have really in many other industries Um, and the newness of it just creates, I don't know, so much innovation and energy that it's yeah, it's hard not once you get, I guess, the bug, it's hard not to um, be really invested in this industry.
0: Now, it seems from what you're both saying and conversations I've had with you before, one of the real strengths of Monolith is not just the talent that you've hired, but the culture you've created, because you you can hire the best people in the world, but if they're in the wrong culture, they won't actually work together and kind of strive for the same thing. Lots of sort of earlier stage startups are not in the fortunate position of having an Emily, um, which I think it, it takes you to get to a certain level before you can kind of even contemplate a chief people officer. For those companies a bit earlier in their journey who don't have somebody in that role, is there any kind of hot tips you've got for them on on how to have that kind of, or how to build that culture that suits what you're trying to achieve.
2: Yes, absolutely. I think one of the, at least a couple of tidbits, because this isn't my first startup or maturing organization I've been a part of. And um, obviously culture is often a big part of that and getting it right, you know, when you're a couple hundred people is a lot easier than when you're a few thousand people. I think part of what gets misrepresented in what culture is, is it's not about snacks and lunches and ping pong tables that we often saw in you know, the early 2000s is what, what culture meant. Um, it's about workplace, it's about behaviors, it's about relationships um, and what matters. And I think every company respectfully should be different in that sense. You know, What matters at Monolith is this idea of We're building technology that's new, and that means intellect matters. It means we're bringing all these different backgrounds and experiences and life situations that are helping to kind of round out and make us a better organization, whether it's through our innovation or what we have to build. And so those are just core parts of what we think about in our culture is different and unique. And I think every company has that chance and that can come from a ceo that can come from a group of leaders or it could come from an entire company to say you know these are really the things that matter to us the behaviors the actions the way we feel that are really unique for us and that we're going to hold near and dear now they'll evolve right over time you have that chance to see how they mature or change but you keep the essence of them and so as we think about you know this idea that Um, whether it's our grit or tenacity or our need for innovation is this huge part of kind of our culture and what we stand for, that's going to shift and evolve as we expand, as we grow, as we have different locations and offices, but it still will remain a critical part of how we think about hiring, you know, how we think about um, onboarding people, how we look at who's developing into leaders and their readiness. Um, Those will become just critical parts of how we scale the organization Um, but how we do it will come in behaviors, actions, recognition against those actions.
0: Great advice for people, because I think it's one of those functions that people are desperate to have early on. It's just, it's, you know, it's such a huge investment and sort of it's very, very hard to steer away from those kind of core technical positions when you're starting out that type of business. Rob, coming back to you and kind of thinking ahead. Now, I never like to put a time frame on this question because it, well, there was days gone by when you'd ask people what the next decade looks like. But I think it's, it's a kind of an impossible question. But what does the... The kind of short to medium term future for monolith look like and how do you see it needing to adapt to kind of industry changes and demands
1: yeah so i think if i go to the macro side of it i think there's two things one i think that kind of climate tech as a solution to climate change is real i think the world's not going to move away from that and so i think we're going to see continued support financially regulatory wise for you know the types of companies we're building On the other hand, the market is going to be much tougher, right? We've just come off decades of, you know, incredibly low interest rates and that's changed. And so I I think you're seeing some headwinds for emergent industries like this that are going to persist. And I think there's going to be a lot of pain in the market. I think there's going to be a lot of the companies that don't find a real competitive advantage and don't find that right kind of product market fit, customers, unit economics, path to scalability, they're not going to make it. And that's different than five years ago. Five years ago, anyone that had an idea in climate tech was getting funded and then getting through series B, etc. That Those days are over. And so for Monolith, what that means is, you know, I think we've been fortunate that, you know, we, we are a maturing company and, you know, we're post-revenue now and we're starting to scale and move towards profitability, but we've got to be a survivor. And so the mindset changes a little bit from just 100% growth towards like, yes, growth, but also entrenchment, making sure that we're going to be one of those few that actually makes it through this cohort to the other side. And the other side super exciting. I mean, we saw that with Tesla, right? If, if you actually get to the other side and you have the big competitive advantage and you're head technologically, you can command a lot of kind of market share in these high growth emerging markets. So that's what our next year is look like, I think it's going to be more of a fight. And I think there's going to be a lot more casualties in this space. But that doesn't mean that everyone's going to be a casualty. And just because we're going to see some headline failures that are, you know, big craters from a destruction of capital and value, that doesn't mean the whole space needs to go down. And I don't think it will. I think that there's going to be winners as well. And our job is to make sure that we position ourselves on that winner side of it by actually building a great business.
0: Well, I certainly wish you the very best in doing that. It sounds like you're building the right team to make that happen. So this brings me to my last question, and it's to both of you. So I always think it's nice to leave people with a token of wisdom. And our listener base is people who are contemplating their own startups, people who already work in the sector, but perhaps looking for a change and a challenge, or people who are doing something totally different and are contemplating a career in clean tech. So I guess if you could offer any one of those sectors of people a a little piece of advice, a a token of wisdom to take with them, what would it be?
1: So I'll give one to founders, which is the world has gotten very competitive in this space. And so you need to find a business. And if you're founding one that has a big competitive advantage, not a small one, a big one, because there's going to be a lot of competition. And I think in most cases, that's going to be solving a hard technical problem. And we have a quote at Monolith that is just easier than impossible. And so that would be my advice is you're going to spend a good chunk of your career, if not all of it, on this company. Make sure that if you get through it, it's going to matter at the end. And that usually means solving something super hard.
2: Yeah, I have maybe two. One, I think hiring whether it's at early stages or even, frankly, where we are, a couple of um, hundred people to, you know, two to three hundred people, hiring thoughtfully is um, really critical, um, especially in early stage, right? Those are often employees you will have for a long time, hopefully, and you need them for a long time. So just being really thoughtful about who you bring in early into the organization. Um, and it directly connects to my second Culture building can be really daunting, you know, as to what we were just um, talking about, but it doesn't have to be. Um, again, it's thinking through what kind of organization you want to build and therefore what behaviors you sort of cement into the organization, right? Are you authoritative? Do you want dispersed decision making? Like all of those little things that start right as the company is um, beginning, those decisions of you know, what communications you send out, how you care about people, how do you bring them into the organization? Those are all starting to build the culture that you want. So while it's daunting to think of it in a holistic manner, it is broken up by all those small decisions. And so let yourself be thoughtful about all of those small decisions, whether it's what communication matters, you know, how we make decisions as a group, you know, how do we care about people on their birthdays or not, Uh, all of those things can matter in building a culture and you can do them differently and have a really successful culture you just take the time to think about them
0: well amazing advice and I'm sure they will um, land well with our listeners but thank you both so much for sharing your story I think what you're both doing is incredible and we're seeing brilliant things coming out of monolith and it sounds like there's more brilliant things to come so yeah, thank you for joining us today and, and being such great guests um, and I wish you every success. Thank you, I appreciate it.